You're listening to The Five Games Of, a special series of the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games, their first, their latest, and three of their choice. The conversation not only covers the game themselves, but also the ways that they demonstrate how the games industry has changed over the years. This time I'm joined by the founder of Double Fine Productions and a veteran of LucasArts. He's known for many, many games, including Day of the Tentacle, Costume Quest, Broken Age, and five even more prominent examples that obviously we're going to be touching on today. Uh, Tim Schaefer, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. How are you doing? How's life keeping you? Oh, it's pretty, you know, same as a lot of people. I'm here in my house and... uh, (laughs) um, just looking forward to talking to someone besides my cats. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that I get, I get to uh, outrank the cats today. Um, has, uh, has life been uh, a, a little less stressful post uh, Psychonauts 2? Obviously, it only came out a couple of months ago, so I assume things are a bit easier at your end? Yes, there's a lot fewer daily meetings about uh, everything that is uh, in a state of emergency, so that's <laughs> much more relaxing. Excellent. Um, we are obviously going to get onto Psychonauts 2 later, that is your fifth game, but we'll start off with your first game, The Secret of Monkey Island. First released in 1990, with versions on Amiga, Atari ST, FM Towns, Mac PC, Sega CD, iOS, PS3, and 360, developed and published by Lucasfilm Games. Um, how did you come to work on this game? How did you get the role on this? Well, this is uh, really the job of a lifetime, and really lucky for me because I was in college just the year before, uh, studying computer science at um, University of California, Berkeley. And I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I really thought, I, I, games seemed like a, yes, I love video games, and I played them all my life. And I, I wrote a letter once to a magazine, a games magazine called Analog. Like, how can I, hi, I'm 15, how can I get a job in the games industry? And they never wrote back. I was like, I guess it's impossible. <laughs> um, so I was going to get a job as a database programmer. And then I saw this job listing for Lucasfilm Games, as they were called at the time. And... Um, they wanted programmers who could write. And my other thing that I was really interested in besides programming was uh, creative writing. So it seemed like a perfect job for me, and it was. And um, as I, I told the story before, but I, I, I messed up in my phone interview, and I, they asked me what, what games of theirs I had played, and I said, Ball Blaster, because I really love Ball Blaster on my Atari 800. And he goes, Ball Blaster, huh? That's what it was called when it was pirated. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> messed up that interview, so I did it. I figured I had nothing to lose, so I did a really art-filled uh, cover letter, which had a description of uh, my ideal job uh, hunt as an adventure game, like a text-based adventure game with pictures. And I don't know if that did it, but somehow I got that job. And I started Lucas, and it's, it was amazing. I mean, it was a it was at Skywalker Ranch, so it was just like right in the um, in the in the belly of the Sarlacc pit monster, but really beautiful craftsman furniture and Victorian. It was just really nice. I couldn't believe how lucky I was to get that job. And um, in the beginning, it was um, uh, they put us into training to learn the programming language they had designed for their graphic adventure games called Scum, which was the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. And um, they every day, Ron Gilbert, the creator of the language and the creator of Maniac Mansion, would come upstairs and teach us a little bit. And then we would mess around with these assets for... Um, they were actually art that Steve Purcell had made for Sam and Max. Not the game, but like way in advance. I'm mean, wearing a Sam and Max t-shirt today. Look at that. Very nice. On brand. I like it. Podcast. Tim shows a very fashionable Sam and Max t-shirt. <laughs> um, 
And then uh, the four original scumlets, because Dave uh, Grossman and I were doing all the jokes in our Scum U projects, um, we got picked to be on a game that Ron was working on. He had just had a, a, a small document with a pitch uh, called Mutiny on Monkey Island um, and had the, the story about Monkey Island and the pirates and the ghosts and LeChuck and, and everything. And um, we started talking about this game and he had he had the story laid out and he wanted uh, he had some puzzles but he wanted to brainstorm puzzles so we brainstorm puzzles and the rest is the the fun history of secret of monkey island nice um i i, I think i read that uh your comedy and dave grossman's comedy was uh so different that uh you were actually kind of assigned different parts of the game like so that it, it, it at least seemed a bit more consistent is that correct? <laughs> I don't. I mean, we did just each grab our own section. You know, Ron had the uh, the ghost pirate ship and the scenes with LeChuck. Um, I did for a while. Dave was on Monkey Island and I was on Melee Island, but eventually we both worked on both. So um, uh, Dave did like Herman Toothrot, and I did the, the a lot of the villagers, the the vegetarian, the health conscious cannibals, and. Um, <laughs> And we all had our own uh, things, and I, I, I feel like I could tell the difference just because of our st- personal styles. But I feel like I don't know. I think I hope it all blends together into one um, seamless uh, well, I, comedy I, extravaganza. I used, I used to love the original Monkey Island, and that genuinely is news. I, I read that today. That was news to me. Like I never thought, ah, oh, that's clearly a different person's section. So, um, <laughs> so fairly broad question, but it's kind of in, key, in keeping with the, the actual kind of subject of this show is. Um, what are the biggest differences in the games industry and in making games, the process of making games back then compared to today? I know that's quite broad, but like if you look back mm-hmm. to like when you first started, like what's the biggest things that have changed? Like what do you miss? What do you not miss? Yeah. I mean, there's a very specific place in time and context for that game because we were at um, Lucasfilm, which was obviously a very well-funded institution riding high on that uh, space money. And, um, but we were prohibited from making Star Wars games or any licensed games because uh, Kenner or Parker Brothers or someone had the rights to that. And so they said, okay, here's a bunch of money, but you're going to have to make up stuff from scratch. And we're like, oh my gosh. And it led to this, you know, I feel like I, I think of it as a golden age of creativity there because so we made up all those games, Monkey Island and Dave, Tentacle and Full Throttle and all those, all those games were because we could, we had to. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the that was the the financial reality of the situation, which which was really a great and kind of interesting bubble to be in. But and also part of that bubble is that there was really no internet for those early days. I mean, the first time I remember thinking of the internet was near the end of Full Throttle. But the, like the first time first feedback I got on Full Throttle was like, oh, people were talking about it on CompuServe. Like it was still you know um, early days. But uh, especially back in Monkey Island, there was there was nothing. So you would wonder what uh, Johnny Wilson was going to write about you in Computer Games, Computer Gaming World magazine. You know, so it was a lot of delay, a, lot, a big dis, uh, diff, uh, uh, like a a big buffer between you and the community, a big buffer between you and the reviewers and the fans. Like you would sometimes have a visit from someone in the in the press, but it was all print you know, media, and then you'd, there'd be these delays of, like, how long the review would take to come out, and so you'd release this game, and then you'd be, like, you'd know about sales and stuff like that, but you wouldn't get any of the kind of fire hose of feedback you get right now from from fans and reviewers and stuff, so it's it quieter in some ways, um, and we relied much more on things like the Game Developers Conference or E3, because it was, like, the only time you saw people. You'd, like, go to E3 and meet someone, you're like, oh my gosh, you make games too? What's it like for you? Oh my gosh, I didn't know all games had bugs. What? <laughs> so a funny kind of like um, isolated, but um, 
but a really fun time for us and maybe in that situation because we were uh, lucas film games which was a very you know special place at the time and um and so it was really easy to believe that the whole game industry was just you like it was just me and dave and ron and steve Purcell and all the people working on that game and the kind of family at lucasfilm and allowed us to make games just thinking about each other's senses of humor and something that we all thought was funny instead of worrying about if twitter would think it was funny I say we've kind of, we've kind of gone the other way now with Twitter. You've got plenty of people telling you what they think of the game before the game is even finished. So yeah, exactly. Which uh, yeah. I, I imagine can be both a blessing and a curse. So. I mean, when it's bad, it's bad, and when it's good, like we've had a lot of fun releasing Psychonauts too. Uh, a lot of nice responses to that. But oh, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the ending <laughs> on the podcast. No, 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 because I haven't finished. Don't, don't don't spoil the ending because I haven't finished yet. Okay. Maybe some new guys. No. Um. Looking specifically, like, you know, the, the, the part that you were most interested in, like the you know, the creative writing side, has the process of of writing for games changed? Like both both kind of the process and the kind of the the styles of comedy and stuff that was available. Cause like uh, Secret Monkey Island, like I, I remember it back in the day. Like it was, it, I don't remember many funny games back then, and I kind of think to now is like there's not many funny games now. There are some. There are probably more than there used to be. But like it still feels like comedy is kind of a a smaller part of the games industry. Like. The the opportunity for for comedy and like the the process of writing it for games how has that changed over the years? I mean, for me, not much, just because I've stuck with the way that I know how to do it. So I'm still writing in like a long handed uh, in a notebook with a pen, and I, I still have people you know putting uh, the dialogue in the database for me. But we do have a lot more. Um, People on the team, you know, you think of it as a narrative department now, whereas in the old days it was just me and Dave and Ron and the scum system. But um, now there's, you know, there's people thinking about the script and there's special, special, uh, you know, gameplay programmers focusing on the implementation of the dialogue. And there's people you know, editing the, you know, the, you know, pre-recorded voice adds a, a lot of complexity to it. So we have people focusing on that. So... You have to get it done a lot earlier. You can't, you know, I changed lines in Monkey Island like the day before we shipped. I changed dialogue, <laughs> you know, but now we sim ship in different languages and we have recorded voice that has to be animated too, much more cutscenes. So it's that part is a lot more complicated. You just have to get it done earlier, which is probably for the best. You should probably, <laughs> probably get that writing done earlier. Um, and then, um, you know, I mean, the world has changed as far as like what we think about just even between the first two second, the, um, between the two Psychonauts games, as far as how we think about our impact of our words and, you know, what words can be really you know harmful to people or stigmatizing about mental health and things like things that we never thought about or I didn't think about in the same way back then. So that is actually a precursor to something I'm going to be asking you at a later section, obviously the Psychonauts 2 section. Um, but for now, we will move on to our second game. Okay, game two is Full Throttle, first released in 1995 with versions on PC, Mac, PS4, PS Vita, iOS, Linux and Xbox One, developed and published by LucasArts. You were no longer LucasFilm Games by this point. Um, so, uh, yeah, a little bit like about how you came to, to have a role on this one, and what, what was your role on this one? Uh, this is the first game where I was a project leader and the sole project leader. I'd done Day of the Tentacle with Dave Grossman as a co-project lead, and that was a lot of fun. And then afterwards, they asked Dave and I what we wanted to do next, and they asked for a multiple game pitch document. So I wrote like five game pitches. One was a skeleton game that would eventually become uh, Griffin Dango. I had a spy game. I had a biker game. And I wrote a 
pitch for a sequel to Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle in there. And um, they're like, oh, this is just too many games. Like, what? <laughs> which one don't you, do you, which one do you really care about? And like, I had to go, I, I had this moment of um, kind of a, a tough, tough choice because I, uh, uh, they kind of, the, the implication was that, you know, you really should try to justify one of these games. And so I, I was really excited about um, uh, what would become Full Throttle because a friend was telling me about their summer up in, um, they were hanging out in Alaska and they went to this biker bar a lot and there are all these bikers doing donuts in the mud out front. And they talked about um, Big Rick and Smiling Phil and all, they're going to Sturgis and all these things. It just sounded like, it sounded like pirates. Like it sounded like a different kind of pirates to me. Um, and uh, it sounded like management wanted to hear like a marketing justification for like, why should we make this game? And I've kind of felt like this, this is a new, this is an idea that so far our, our characters or our heroes are kind of these lovable losers or, you know, nerds that you kind of identify with, but they always, you know, mess up, but they win the day in the end. But it's I, like, these games are for people who, who enjoy laughing at themselves maybe, or don't take themselves too seriously. But what about someone who wants to be like a character that's cooler than them or someone who's like, knows how to ride a motorcycle and kick a door down and be this badass and like um just a little bit just just a little bit like that and so um that seemed to actually convince people like yeah let's take a chance on this biker game even though we don't want like sons of anarchy they didn't know what that show was at the time <laughs> but they're like yeah that was one question they asked like what are you doing in this game driving around like selling drugs or what are you doing? Like, no, <laughs> just living free on the road i was very naive about biker games but i was like just living free like in the wild ones and uh and so it was kind of a, in some ways, a business pitch, I guess. And it worked out. It was a big, for the adventure games at LucasArts, it was a big hit. And it was, um, sold more than any adventure game I worked on there. And, uh, uh, it was, but it did get a lot of uh, blowback for being short on CompuServe. I heard from the folks on CompuServe that it was, uh, too short. But that felt, some people thought that was the secret to a success. They were like, this is the first game I've ever finished. And then they immediately <laughs> told their friends about it. Uh, so. It's good good to know that uh, people still complain about games being too short, like back then when I was like, you, know, yeah. you think you think about how long they are now, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Back then, you had one game all summer at your grandparents' house. You're like, yeah, oh, they got an old computer, and I got one game. I got to make it last all summer. <laughs> Uh, this, this is like not too long after the era of, uh, I remember speaking to Ron Gilbert once like he kind of admitted that the amount of backtracking in Monkey Island 2 is purely because they needed to stretch the game out so much which is why you went to like one island for one item and then back to another island for another item and then back to a third island yeah. for the puzzles like because you, you needed longevity um, well, we'd always say 40 hours that was just the marketing blurb on the back of all the adventure games and we're like <laughs> did we find this or something was like, no 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 just we just got to hit that with our puzzles and, uh, 40 <laughs> it, hours it took someone 40 hours, probably me. So, um, <laughs> Full Throw was one of the first ones to use like FMV, like full motion video and kind of mm -hmm. cinematics as well, like rather than just being all being animated in game. And um, how was the use of cinematics changing at the time? And like, how is it compared to now? Obviously, like, cutscenes have become much more sophisticated nowadays. But, like, um, from your kind of perspective, like, how has the use of, of cinematics and, and particularly FMV changed? Well, it's a big tech uh, milestone there because, like, I remember when we first programmed, I programmed the the scene where the Chuck leaves Monkey Island on a ship, and I was like, "Why is it moving so slow?" And they're like, "Oh, this is you're moving too many pixels on the screen. Like, you were just this little postage stamp was just too many pixels to move on the screen at once." So I had to like optimize it and shrink it down. Um, and uh, but then, I don't know if you heard about this technology, CD-ROM, compact discs, ROM, and um, 
uh, it was just, you know, to us, when CD-ROMs came out, that seemed like infinite storage. We're like, well, you can't run out of space on it. This is crazy. And so um, uh, Vince Lee had made Rebel Assault, which was like a rendered 3D, had two innovations, like CD-ROM and also th rendered 3D graphics. So he re he rendered tr a trench run, and then you flew a, um, uh, a Rebel spaceship down the, uh, the trench. And... Um, and we we're like that, you know, if you lowered the walls on that trench, that could be like a highway and you could be driving a bike down it. And so um, we did and we, we pre-rendered a lot of 3D for full throttle and then painted over it because we had we didn't we didn't have cell shading. So we had to like hand cell shade all the 3D. Um, and that just let us do these um, because in between there was a step on Day of the Tentacle where we like had a three full screen animations, like when the Founding Fathers jump out the window when the um, Edison's in jail yell at the skunk, and then one other one that I'm forgetting. But we had these big full-screen animations. It was such a big deal to just move the whole screen, but we were just moving a few pixels on the screen. But now, through Vince's magic smush engine, um, we were streaming a highway. It was really exciting because you really felt like you were driving down this twisting, winding mountain highway. Nice. Um, one of the other things that, that Full Throttle kind of brought new to, or certainly you know, was one of the earliest examples in terms of... Um, LucasArts games was the use of um, celebrity voice talent. Um, I, kind of, I only learned today like you had people like Mark Hamill in the original uh, Full Throttle. Like, how is the the attitude of celebrities and, and like the the interest of celebrities in appearing in video games? Like, how was that different back then? Because like it's it's semi commonplace now. Certainly, when we went through like a good decade of you know loads of actors turning here. You, Call of Duty would always have some sort of star in it, but like the idea of celebrities being in uh, in video games back in the nineties is uh, is mm -hmm. slightly baffling to me. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even have digital sound in you know when Monkey Island Two. I think there's a spitting contest, and the spitting sound was one of the first digital sounds in any video game. Like it was really early, um, and so um, Day of the Tentacle became a talkie, as we called it, half after the game was halfway finished, and then. Um, full throttle. Day of the Tentacle had celebrity, as far as I'm concerned, because we we said we want Bernard Bernoulli to have a voice, kind of like that guy Les Nesman on WKRP in Cincinnati, which you might not have seen because it's an old show in America. But um, we loved it. We loved um, Les Nesman, so we got Les Nesman uh, uh, to be in the game, the actor who played Les Nesman. And then on um, Full Throttle, we had mark hamill had started doing joker already in some version of batman and so we knew he was interested in vo but there were some celebrity things that would happen once in a while like there was a, what was that cd rom game uh about a hell cab or, or a cabin hell. anyway dennis hopper i think he appeared in a game so anyway <laughs> we thought like because we're lucas we can reach out to um to mark and he would do and he um, and he was he was in, really interested, and he's interested in voice. And he did three characters in that in that you know he did Todd the junkyard artist, and he did Emmett the truck driver, and he most importantly did Adrian Ripperger, the super evil um, uh, businessman with an inner ear uh, defect. <laughs> he he does love playing a villain. <laughs> he's really good at, it, and he was really fun to work with in the studio. He's very creative and talented, obviously. Nice. Okay, uh, that's full throttle. We have three games to go, so I'm going to move on to our third game.
Game 3 is Grim Fandango, first released in 1998 with versions on PC, Linux, Mac, PS4, PS Vita, Android, iOS, Xbox One and Switch. I should clarify that not all of those came out in 1998, obviously. Developed and published by LucasArts. Uh, how did you come to work on this one? Well, um, uh, Full Throttle had been a big hit, and so I had some, even though there was some pressure to make a Full Throttle sequel, um, I had a little bit of clout. Like, I felt like I could pitch anything, and they'd be like, all right. So I was like, I really love this festival um, in Mexico called the Day of the Dead. Um, it wasn't celebrated as much here as it is nowadays. You see it on every um, Pinterest board and everything. But um, I just had some, I'd studied, uh, in my anthropology class, I'd studied folklore. And one of the things we studied was Day of the Dead. Uh, it just seemed like a really beautiful celebration, a really um, interesting, a different perspective on death than you have in, you know, Victorian grim reapers and things like that so um i want to do and i just love these little statues these little paper mache calaveras of like everyday life as skeletons you see like a skeleton dentist operating on a skeleton patient and i was like what if they what if they came to life like that's often our impulse with these games is like what if this world just came to life and you could walk through it so day the dead skeletons and i also was really getting into hard-boiled crime detective no uh, novels and film noir films at the time and um, merged the two together into a, 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 a plot about um, stealing um, tickets to the, to the land of eternal rest. And um, also this game came about because it was a little bit of a pressure, once again, surprisingly amount of uh, bowing to marketing pressure, but it was 3D. 3D was new. Everyone was doing 3D, but at Lucas, we were a very stylized 2D company. You know, we had a, you know, our, 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 the look of data technical and, uh, and, um, you know, Sam Max and Monkey Island was a very stylized 2D painted look that we liked. Um, and 3D at the time just looked to me like someone had silk screened something on a pantyhose and dragged it over a cardboard box and just looked terrible in general. But um, when I looked at the folk art for these skeletons, they didn't model every bone in the ribs of the skeletons. They would just make a lump for the body and then paint the bones on the outside. And I was like, ah, 3D can do that. <laughs> and I was like, this, 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 um, this folk art style could look really good in 3D. Uh, or it looked like we were at least doing it on purpose. And so uh, that was where the impulse to make that game uh, came about. And um, and, uh, and that's where Grim Fandango came from. Nice. So I was going to ask about this. This is the main conversation I wanted to have around um, Grim Fandango, is that, that, that early 3D era. Like So by 1998, you're a good few years into the early 3D era. Like yeah, I think that kicked off in like 1995 with the original PlayStation. So we, you know, we've had four years of of 3d graphics and yeah i remember back in the day like thinking like these look incredible they look like to, to us at the time like photorealistic because you've leapt from you know flat 16-bit you know very impressive 16-bit mm -hmm. art um and you know mm -hmm. even 32-bit art to like this incredible kind of you know three-dimensional shapes like 3d show you can walk around not mm -hmm. just left to right up yeah. and down there are all degrees of travel yeah, especially when they're in motion it look like oh my god it's yeah magical. um so like but to me, like to, you know, to me as a gamer, it was just magical, like just seeing this this sudden like realistic worlds coming to life. Like from the developer's point of view, like what was it? What was it like? What was the the shift change? Like was it was it a massive kind of relearning of everything that you'd, you'd known before in terms of making games? <clears throat> I mean, uh, yeah, I had the same impulse when I first. I I think the first time I felt that way was when I, I played Alone in the Dark. Mm -hmm. I'm in a room and this zombie or someone is banging on the door. And then I went to a side room and I looked out and I could see the zombie from the side view. And I was like, that's the same zombie. I can see it from the side and the front. Oh my God. It's really there. <laughs> like really felt like it's not just some fake thing. It's really there in this world. Um, 
but I, I was, you know, it was hard to imagine us doing it in our stylized way. But um, there was another game called Bioforge, which was an adventure game set uh, with a pre-render background. So you could pre-render a beautiful background. So it could still be up to our standards for beauty, you know, so we could have a live character rendered on the fly in front of a pre-rendered background. And um, wait, what was the question? I've been talking for a while. <laughs> uh, did you have to kind of relearn the ideas of development? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it just opened us up to so many um, cinematic ideas. Like I was like, "Wow, wait, we can have a character walk into a light, from a red light uh, to a blue a room with blue lights. Like, and get change. Like, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so interesting." But you know, navigating the space is really different. You know, how do you navigate a three dimensional space? You know, until um, Super Mario sixty four just is like, "Well, how about if you just push the joystick in the direction you want to go?" And everyone's like, "Oh my god, that's brilliant!" But before then, it was all like experiments and things like tank controls. You know, Resident Evil had done these tank controls left, right. So had uh, Bioforge. And so we used um, tank controls, much to the uh, consternation of many players who didn't like that. But I, I got really used to it. I was really fast with manning and the tank controls. I was thinking, looking back to like past 3D generations, like those two, you mentioned like Super Mario 64 and, and Resident Evil. Like I think those two kind of demonstrate how yeah, LucasArts specialized in a, a stylized art style and in the long run that serves you much better like Super Mario 64 even in its original 64 version looks so much better than the original Resident Evil now and you kind of can see that in like kind of the following console generations there are games that still look as good now as they did back then and then there are games that were aiming for that kind of photorealistic kind of uh, style and uh, or, you know, as close to realism as they could manage and it just looks awful but still nostalgically playable <laughs> yeah and I, I yeah i think as long as you match your style to the technology so it's kind of emphasizes what this technology can do well and avoid the things that it can't do well um, but we, we did have to relearn everything and that would say there are two inflection points if you will for like games being easy to games being hard to make like the first few games we made we made like monkey island in nine months i believe and uh there were like um seems really you know, kind of what you see is what you get and then we added voice which made like i said the dialogue had to be locked years in advance you know and, and um and you couldn't change couldn't change things later down the road and then 3d was the other thing that really just exponentially more difficult to make a, a 3d game than a 2d game we had to um you know animation getting things to line up getting things to be you know the the, the camera was now something you had to think about and um, just so many more things, and and then just the fidelity of the characters, which continues to go up every generation. Like even just in the last five years, it's like, it, it, you know, we used to make a character in a day, but now it takes weeks for someone to make a character for a game. So just a lot more fidelity, and I mean the games are amazing for it, but uh, it's definitely um, it takes a lot more people, a lot more money to make a game now because of that. Mm. Grim Fandango was um, critically acclaimed, but my understanding is it, it, it struggled commercially, and I've, I've even seen some places kind of um, point to it as as an example of like the the decline of the adventure genre. Um, now that, that, that's a space you kind of built a career around. So, I kind of wanted to get your perspective on like where the ad adventure genre kind of kind of went from there. Like it it, it did decline. Like the, you know, there were fewer standout adventure games in in the style that you had been making but we get to kind of today and they're you know there's a fair number of them and like they've got a kind of a very dedicated audience so kind of what happened in between from your perspective well um so grim didn't sell as well as it sold about half as much as throttle did so it was not as big as Throttle. but throttle was really more the standout like not you know grim was i mean pretty much in line with how uh 
the progression of our normal graphic adventures we're selling because they none of them we're none of them sold as well as say sierra games the king's quest games were the big the big sellers in the adventure world and we were always trying to sell as much as them and each one sold more than last and so for us it was actually growing but um it would decline that there was a decline in the production of graphic adventures after 98 but it they never really declined in sales they were always growing but they just were so overshadowed by the rest of the games industry that was growing much bigger so um when shooters when doom when uh wolfenstein and doom came out and quake and uh when car uh console games and mario games started exploding millions and millions of copies being sold adventure games just kind of stayed like they were <laughs> they kind of stayed like you know in the sub 1 million copies and, and um and so people just stopped making them and you saw they were much broader it seemed like much more, more broadly appealing uh, accessible games uh but those fans kind of you know there were fans who were like what what about me what about mike i want i like adventure games and that's why it was so perfectly poised for um crowdfunding you know we had a, a huge kickstarter for broken age um it was because i think that um that technology of organized crowdfunding on a platform allows you to serve the underserved you know in any community because um if you're coming out from the other point of view is like you're investing in a, in an entertainment product. You like, how do I maximize this money? How do I get the biggest return from my investment? Therefore I should make a game for the biggest market. Right. But then when the market, you know, crowdfunding, the market is deciding what it wants. So you have this, uh, maybe possibly niche market of venture games being like, well, we want it. Here's our money, you know, and, um, and they made it happen. And I think, uh, crowdfunding caused a big, rebirth in the um, adventure games uh, industry. And I think it's still probably around the same size as it was before where the games are selling even today, the same amount that they were selling back then. It's just that now it's sustainable because the people who want to make those games and the people who want to play those games are connected and they've gotten into a, a sustainable financial relationship. You know? Was that the question? That was, about? I know we're not yeah. talking about broken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's good because you know, spoiler alert for the rest of the podcast. You uh, you haven't chosen, but Broken Age is one of your games, so kind of interesting. We can talk about it, but <laughs> um, well, it's interesting to get the insight because, like you say, yeah, like the crowdfunding in particular has just been a massive change for the industry in terms of what it enables to get greenlit and like the power it puts in the community to yeah bring back like the, these titles that. As the industry has become bigger and bigger and bigger, the publishers have become more and more risk averse. Like they want the big million selling hits. It's kind of like what you're saying about like the um, not the decline, but the kind of the the overshadowing of the adventure genre. Like because they weren't selling more than a million copies, they weren't getting as much attention, and that includes from the publishers. Like crowdfunding has helped. Like you've seen like, yeah, like games that wouldn't have been greenlit by larger companies because they're not going to be a billion dollar franchise you've seen those um come to fruition like come to market which i i, I always think is brilliant like I've, you know i've backed a couple of games myself it's like it's fantastic like right these people are making games that cater to me because we all have very different tastes we're not necessarily all into the kind of the mainline triple a games so it's nice to have that variety and it's nice that there's a, a a an avenue for that and and you guys kind of demonstrated that with broken age like it, it, it was the first really big one that kind of proved it could be done Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we all kind of thought it was, in some ways, I, I wasn't sure, but I, the part of me was hoping that it would just take over as a way of games are funded, you know, going direct instead of having like a middle uh, person deciding what was, a gatekeeper deciding what was made. It was the fans that were deciding what was made. Um, but it never really grew much, big enough to do 
larger games. Like it's, it still is good enough to do smaller games. And we started Psychonauts 2 as a crowdfunded uh, title, um, but not enough for the full budget of a game like Psychonauts 2. Um, and I think part of that is because, you know, it takes so long to deliver to your backers what they backed. You know, I back a lot of board games on, on uh, crowdfunding platforms and um, I get them. Sometimes I get them within a couple months. Like, oh yeah, this is great. And uh, sometimes with video games where it's like, I have a dream. I haven't even started my game yet, but give me the money and I'll make you a game in five years. You know, sometimes <laughs> I get these games five years later. You know, that's, you know, our game was that late, but the um, second I was but you get these games, you're like, did I back this? What is this? I forgot all about this. So um, it's a, in some ways a more challenging match, but it still has a lot of potential for all the reasons you said, like of just people being able to serve themselves, the underserved being able to serve themselves and you know, the wisdom of the crowds, right? They know what they want more sometimes than the gatekeepers know what they want. Mm. Um, but there's other models that we can get into, like, um, it's kind of at the end of our story, I guess. We'll get into that. Yeah, subscriptions. Yes, we will definitely uh, get on to that. Um, right, that was a lovely kind of bonus game segment. We will uh, get back on track with game number four. Game number four is Brutal Legend, first released in 2009, versions on PS3, 360, PC, Mac and Linux, developed by Double Fine Productions, published eventually by Electronic Arts, changed publisher a few times, I seem to remember it was a Vivendi originally, then that got dropped as part of the Activision Blizzard merger, and EA picked it up, so that finally got out. Um... How did this come to be? Because I, I was reading earlier that um, you actually had the idea for this, like back when you were working on Monkey Island. <laughs> no, because then, of course, Lucas would own it. But I, um, <laughs> it's the title. I did it for title when I was, I think, in, in early, yeah, somewhere around that time, I was just like on the bus thinking about like, you know, our adventure games were so weird. And I was thinking about our competition. Our competition were these like role playing games that had very like um, fantasy oriented names. And I was like, if I was going to do one of those, I would try to outdo it. So it was like Brutal Legend was the idea of like outdoing all those names and making the most um, most uh, outlandish uh, metal fantasy games I could. And we did. We made the most outlandish metal fantasy game. Uh, it was really, I felt it, uh, incredibly lucky I got to make that game because it was obviously like a personal, like I grew up loving heavy metal. I always loved heavy metal. And I um, uh, always thought there was a connection between video games and heavy metal. Like so many of the fans mm -hmm. of heavy metal play video games and the world's always approach heavy metal like they you know the they use heavy metal in their trailers they'll show like a lot of this orcs yeah. fighting and then they'll play a metal song in the trailer but that again that song is not in the game the game mm -hmm. is all like symphonic and i was like i think we just got to give people what they what they need which is a metal injection as they say um and we did go through a few publishers we often do that we do that because our games it's kind of like uh when i transferred to colleges i just just like to move around and uh, <laughs> no it's uh uh especially those big games sometimes they will um just outlast a regime at a company and then a new regime comes in and you gotta you gotta find a new you gotta find a new partner um but uh ea really got behind the game and really um and really backed it and helped us out with the the music licensing someone was just explaining to me, asking me for help like hey we want to get a licensed piece of music in our game how do we do it and i was like oh, you got to work with uh, a big company like ea i mean that a whole music licensing department and contractors who knew how to call you know ozzy osbourne's people it's not like i knew how to call ozzy osbourne <laughs> um and uh they would set up these licensing deals and 
and because they're a big company and these and these licensing holder companies want to work with they want to work with someone like EA and a lot of games they want to license their music for tons of games so they can get a better deal and mm. it's a very complicated process the, it's just I have like a three inch thick binder full of these paper licensing deals for every song and it's fun because they'll see every member of Motley Crue signing the, the things like wow Tommy Lee is on this contract here and so is my name that's great um uh, but we've had all kinds of uh, experiences where, like, the band members, one of the band members will feel jilted by the, the like, I got ripped off. I wrote that song. I'm not credited. How did, I heard it's used in a game. And they'll, like, they came to EALA's office once, the guitarist for one of the metal bands, like, give me my money. <laughs> <laughs> As I if it's just sitting there in the office. Like, where, where's the money that you've been keeping from me? They walked up to the receptionist at EALA to ask for them, their money. <laughs> and they, sent, they <laughs> called up us and sent them to us on the phone. And, um, and I've got I've gotten calls to this day. I get every once in a while I get called up by a uh, someone from a metal band going, I heard you uh, use our song in your game. I was like, yeah, it was all done by the book. Let me trust me. But you know, <laughs> it's not often as uh, cut and dry in in terms of the band's history and their relationships with each other. Um, but that was something I'm really was glad to have a big partner on that on that because I really wanted to have the real songs. I want to have the mm. you know I really wanted to have Ozzy and Black Sabbath, and it was really important to that game. And so that was a big foray. Also a big foray into deeper into celebrity voice. Like we got um, Jack Black, you know, like, and, and I felt like we got Jack Black by just make tailoring. Like we made that game. It was very inspired by the feeling behind Tenacious D and also a lot of stuff that Jack Black has done in other, yeah. in other realms. And so I felt like, okay, if he doesn't like this game, he just, he just doesn't <laughs> like games. And we pitched him the game, and it was like it did seem like it was a perfect game for him. I could tell he 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 re related to it right away. And luckily, he played Psychonauts and liked Psychonauts. So nice. it's these kind of personal connections in the end that make a smaller company like us able to have, um, you know, that kind of high end voice talent and acting talent in our games. Now, I remember like on the early like trailers and stuff. It's like yeah, this is just a Jack. This is Jack Black of the game. Like Brutal Legend is a great <laughs> title, but this is basically Jack Black of the game, which is like you know, it's fantastic. Um, can I step away briefly um, because we, within our five games here we've, we've leapt like a full decade forward you know Grim Pandango was 1998 Brutal Legend 2009 like that's a full 10 years and a lot happened in that 10 years can, from your perspective like what were the biggest changes to the industry during that time from 98 to 2009 yeah I mean uh, it, we, you know, for us personally we started uh, Double Fine Productions we kind of kind of avoided the other big um super tanker in the water was like the dot-com industry especially here in san francisco like we mm. we uh we timed it just right so we launched right when the first dot-com industry crashed in 2000 so we could actually afford rent in san francisco because everything was dirt cheap and um it's gotten more expensive since then but uh <laughs> um we, you know, we were in, we were kind of in that in that realm, and our luckily our space that we rented was renovated by a previously failed dot com. We came through and fixed all the earthquake, saved everything. Um, and then, you know, the explosion of the internet and on our has made everything. Um, you have much tighter ties to your community now. Their community mm -hmm. can reach you. They have access to you know your Twitter. They can just talk to me every day on on something that they feel like they report bugs to me. Um, that's not always so great because we have a we have a place you can report bugs to, but um, <laughs> they can get a hold of us. They can uh, we can chat back and forth. Um, they help fund the game sometimes, like on crowdfunding. So, yeah, uh, the biggest change for me is just our relationship with our community and the and the 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 bandwidth of the communication back at you from releasing a product is so different than it was in the '90s, where mm. it was such a 
quiet. It was a quiet experience to release the game back then, except for if you were between um, Nintendo and Sega at E3, then it was very loud in that room. Um, I still can't hear certain registers because of that booth. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, yes, the community and then, you know, financially things uh, bigger and bigger. The team size is like, you know, the team size of the modern game, like 500 people you'll see in the credits or even larger, you know, and mm -hmm. we, you know, made Monkey Island with like hand, like fewer than 10, it feels like people on that team. So um, obviously bigger. Uh, and, and it's in some ways more risk averse, but I've seen an, you know an opening up of, I think the, the indie games uh, ex uh, movement that got really big uh, in the what's it, what year was that that it, uh, it started to um, in the late aughts around 2010. I don't know. Anyway, well, a big explosion of indie games I think really inspired everyone to try different to show mm. that video games could be about any topic. You know, they could be about any genre. They could be any style. And I think. Um, there's a back and forth between indie and AAA games where um, some of those people go into AAA and they and they or someone in AAA might have more experimental ideas and um, but still I've always felt like the indie games are the ones that are really leading leading the way with uh, taking the big risks. So I was going to ask about that as well because like um, Brutal Legend was was interesting for many reasons but like one of the things I always find interesting is it's, it's an action adventure but with like real time strategy elements so it's kind of that that blurring of genres and you don't get, often get that at the the triple a space um i think by this point like the certainly by 2009 it felt like like there were a lot of kind of you your established genres like 3 3d was well and truly taken hold by this point you know we're far beyond the days of 1998 when people are still learning and getting to grips with what 3d can do and it felt like the vast majority of games fit into very kind of tightly defined genres which arguably we still have today um as you say, like indies now still coming up with stuff that like you know is this a game? What sort of game is this? Um, and I think Brutal Legend was was one of the titles trying to do that back in two thousand nine. Like just your thoughts on the the scope for games to to defy a genre to to be something that isn't easy to classify. Like how has that changed over the years and particularly over the course of your career? Well, I felt like. <clears throat> Uh, you know, I, I I thought that would be no problem on, on Brutal Legend just because I played uh, games like Act Razor. Like uh, mm. the fact that I can name like one example shows you how few they are actually. But you know, <laughs> it was a game that has like a, it's a two D platformer with these kind of Sim City elements in between, and I was like, yeah, that was great. Um, and uh, it felt though, in a lot of ways, after we finished Brutal Legend, that was the last time we can do something like that. You know, that was the last time. Uh, we can do a wild and crazy game as an indie studio for that much money and most importantly retain ownership of our IP. Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of deals for that many millions of dollars, you cannot hold on to your IP anymore. If someone's going to give you that much money, they're going to want to own the IP. And so that was why we stopped making games that big for a while because we wanted to remain an independent studio. So we started making smaller games, much smaller budgets where you could get them signed and still own the IP rights. That makes sense. So that's where it kind of changed forever for us, then, mm. at least for the next ten years. Well, speaking of the next ten years, let's get on to our final game. Dun, dun, dun. Hopefully, not our final game. <laughs> the final video game. <laughs> Thank you. 
Last game we're discussing today is Psychonauts 2, first released in 2021, this year. Uh, versions on PC, PS4, Xbox One, Xbox Series XS, Linux and Mac, developed by Double Fine, published by Xbox Game Studios, your new overlord. I see new overlords, it's been years since you got bought now. Um, so... <laughs> First kind of question on this one then, like yeah, we, we were talking about like um, you know the, the, a lot changed over the next ten years in terms of the indie games. Like looking at development specifically, what were the biggest differences uh, compared to working when you were working on Psychonauts one? Like like what? How had development changed between working on Psychonauts and its and its sequel? Uh, well, both on the inside, we had no idea what we were doing when we made Psychonauts. So we, we were kind of thinking, you know, we made a bunch of PC graphic adventures, you know, and we never done a console game before. So I like to think we knew what we, did, what we were doing. Um, that was one difference. The industry um, had kind of, a, uh, once again, walked away from that genre that we loved. You know, we like we did with the adventure games. Uh, we were thinking with 3D action platformers with a colorful, stylized look and a you know lovable main character i think a, a character-based action platformers were gone i felt like you know they were not something that you you, you saw a lot everything a lot of things were very dark and gritty and, and had a lot more of a combat focus and um uh, i you know we wanted to bring that back and once again crowdfunding helped us get that get that started but um uh we did eventually you know get a bigger partner with uh, xbox game studios to help us make that into the grand uh, spectacle that it became by the end no, excellent. Um, going back then, what we, we were talking about something earlier um, in terms of you know, the, the writing and the comedy and so forth, one of the big things is, um, and you recently did a talk on this at a games event, about the, the, the changing attitudes as to how you handle subject matter. So uh, Psychonauts obviously deals with kind of you know, jumping into people's minds and you know, rewriting their... Uh, their, their personalities and like you know, a lot of the kind of the characters and the enemies are riffs on like the idea of like mental health conditions and so forth. Um, yeah, I quite like the you know, find, searching the levels, searching for the emotional baggage, and you're literally looking for baggage. It's like you know, a suitcase mm-hmm. and a, a camera case. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, but uh, Psychonauts Two deals with it a lot more sensitively than the original. Not saying that the, the original was insensitive, but like mm-hmm. there was a, there's definitely kind of a lot more kind of. Uh, caution this time round, like um, just your thoughts on like yeah the, the the changing attitudes and expectations around how you handle subject matter, to, particularly if you are making kind of a comedic game around it. Well, I think uh, it's part of a larger thing that society in general has like just uh, become more aware of people who are not like you or people who are different. You know, in, in um, years gone past, you were kind of lived in this bubble a lot of people did where you just thought about what you thought was funny and 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 everyone's just like you and so if it doesn't bother you it shouldn't bother anyone else and i feel like in general thought we think as a society a lot more about empathy more about that there's a lot of people whose lives are not like ours and what is it like for them and what would it be like them to play our game and and this gets into like accessibility or diversity and inclusion and, and and definitely mental health where we think about you could do something that would be really stigmatizing and actually hurt people if you don't um, if you don't think about these things, you know, and in our case, you know, we're lucky enough, uh, Xbox was in, in touch with different types of testing and consultants to, to, to check out, you know, we had good intentions and we'd done some research, but getting someone like an organization like take this, um, dot org who, who played the game and, and alerted us just kind of showed us, helped us with the blind spots. You know, like everyone's got blind spots for like, I had not considered how that would, um, be uh, taken by someone else and i think um that's just something that every game every work of art has to do 
now. And, and I think people might bemoan that, like, oh, can't we just have fun? Don't we have to not think about these things? And it's like, you can, you can just have fun if you don't care how what you're making affects people. But why would you, why would you want to do that? Because if you're doing anything creative, you're always thinking about, if you're making a comedy, you're like, will this make people laugh? You know, you're always thinking about how what you're doing affects the audience. And it's just this new question of like, would this injure somebody? Would this make someone, you know, feel, uh, feel depressed? You know, like you gotta, that's just part of the artistic process. You just, we're just a lot more aware of people who aren't like us, I think, hopefully in the world. And I think video games especially needs to, um, has a lot of room for improvement there with mental health because it's been a very, just very tropey thing to do with games is to, when you need a villain, just uh, make them look like they have severe mental health problems, right? That's if you need to, like, how do you explain villainous behavior? Because it takes, um, it's a lot more work when you're a writer to think of like, well, I want to make a villain who in their own mind is a hero and they're doing, they're just executing a plan and you're in the way of it as, you know, and that's, you know, good villains are always that way where they, oh, they think they're doing something interesting and, and cool. And, um, or you could just take a shortcut and just say like, they're, that person is just a wacko, right? They're, they're just like, unexplainable because they have these some sort of um some sort of problem in their brain they're not they're not right and therefore it's okay for me to fight them and shoot them and do all these things that we do in video games you know and i just think it's 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 harmful but it's also just lazy like lazy writing you can probably come up with something better than your villain is just uh broken in their head you could probably come up with something a little more creative than that i guess another factor is the 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 sheer growth of the game's audience you know by 2021 yeah, the number of people that have a console or a gaming PC or certainly a mobile phone. Mobile phones are ubiquitous now. Like you know, we're talking about gamers in terms of you know hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people. Rather than you know back when the original came out, like you know two thousand five, you're looking at the PS two, Xbox generation. Like those consoles, certainly the Xbox, like didn't sell as many units as say the Xbox three sixty after it. And um, PS two kind of stands as still one of the biggest selling consoles. But like the the number of people that yeah, I think the PS2 like it was an exception because a lot of people were using it for like um, as a DVD player or for things like you know iToy and dance mats and stuff like that. But you have you have a much more mainstream audience now, like a much larger audience now. And the bigger audience, the bigger the audience becomes, the more likely you are to have someone playing your game that could potentially be harmed by an insensitive joke. So you have to kind of cater for a much broader range of people when you're making something like this, I guess. Yeah, the audience is, is huge, and I think the audience uh, just is more thoughtful now mm-hmm. than they, they used to be. And um, and there's also more resources now. There's more knowledge out there, if you look for it, or hire the right consultants or testing facilities. Like There's just a lot more knowledge that will – there are people who will just drop into your parachute, paratroop into your project and tell you – you know, you're doing something that would harm epileptics, or you're doing something that would not be playable by someone who has a different, uh, you know, mo- mobility concern or something like that. And so there's a lot more help out there as well as a lot more um, uh, awareness of those people who were always out there, but they just weren't playing games before. Mm. Uh, last thing I want to touch on, um, again, we kind of, we, we, we veered towards this earlier in the discussion is a kind of business model so we've, we've talked about crowdfunding but like um in terms of selling a game to a, a player you know when you first started this was very kind of simple retail uh business like you know games were only available through stores bricks and mortar shops those places that you used to you used to have to go in and physically pick up a box and take it to a till those places mm-hmm. um now that you know there's digital downloads in, in addition to retail there's 
subscriptions. You know, I, I have to confess the reason I've played Psychonauts two is because I'm on Xbox Game Pass. I, I I missed the original, therefore I don't I don't know enough about it to warrant. It's also on Game Pass. So you... Ah, well, there we are. I can catch up now. Yeah, Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, like, we'll, we'll, no to be fair, now James, keep going. <laughs> to be fair, the catch up at the start of Psychonauts two is is superb. Like, Brilliant. Like, I, I'm, I'm up to speed with the story. I can go back and play that uh, at a later time. But yeah. that, that's the point. You you you've got more entry points in terms of um, reaching people that might not spend money on your game and you know there's a lot of debate at the moment as to as to whether this is kind of uh of how this is impacting the value the perceived value of video games but kind of your thoughts on like subscriptions role and just another business model like the, the change of how how the industry is selling its content or or making its content available to consumers yeah i mean you can talk a lot about whether it's right or wrong, or what's, but it's happening. It's <laughs> you pretty much have to like uh, plan for it, and that was you know one of the uh, seemed like a big upside of being part of of Xbox was being part of Xbox Game Pass, which is this crazy deal, like this crazy. I sound like a salesman, but it's like um, so many games on there. And what what I was hoping for, and was I feel like proving to be true, is that. We were talking about crowdfunding and like how do you get original games made and 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 games that take risks how do you get them made mm-hmm. and crowdfunding was one way but it didn't turn out to be as big as far as growth wise as we needed but um you're looking at what's happening over in like digital subscription services for movies and tv you know like how many interesting new tv series were created by netflix or another channel who actually just needs content for their um their subscription model um, it led to a lot of new shows being made that were really great that we wouldn't have had without that sort of investment. And so mm-hmm. um, uh, I feel like uh, that would, that's a great opportunity for us. And I feel like we were able to uh, put us, ourselves in a p- position where we can now make our original creative games and take risks and, and, and that we have a supportive partner who has a service where they want that kind of content for it and they want a lot of it. And so... I think it could lead to a lot of great new original content. It's it's also great. I can, I'm quietly optimistic about subscription services because, as you say, like it, it, it greenlights this, this content that might not have got made, but definitely appeals to certain people. Like you know, they're, they're not every game is a million selling hit. Not every game has an audience of millions, but even if it has a couple of hundred thousand, or you know, like, you know mm. enough people that that want that game to be a thing like like there are there are entire genres that that publishers won't necessarily back or 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 will back for one title and then back out because it's not that it's not returned to the investment they expected like so i'm quietly hoping like we all have quite niche taste like every everyone's got something that that is that appeals to them specifically like in a, in a certain way that scratches a different itch and i'm really hoping kind of um services like game pass like ps now could you know if sony starts doing that on, on their service like could perhaps kind of see more you know there's games that i'd like to see made and aren't being made by the big companies but are yeah. perhaps too comprehensive for an indie to take on so perhaps subscription services can can cater to these yeah because there always will be those big triple a games and we like those mm. too you know so th- those will always exist and um it's just that there's you, you it reduces one of the the barriers between people who want uh, their the th- like you're saying they, there's there's an appetite there's people who want a thing and then there's people who want to make that thing and it's just one more way of um, getting out of the way of those two people who want to get together it's like they can find themselves on that on that subscription platform and and, and be happily playing the games that they love. 
Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> Uh, on that optimistic note then that is all we have got time for today Tim thank you so so much for joining us thank you for having me it's been fun uh, and thank you dear viewer and or listener uh, if you've enjoyed this please be sure to check out the GameStreet.biz podcast feed uh, we've got more five games off this episode there so we've uh, speaking previously we've done the five games of Warren Spector Brenda Romero J- Jesper Kidd Debbie Bestwick Mike Bithell among others uh, I'm hoping to have more gun I th- I've enjoyed this video one. we should do this more often so hopefully I'll get another guest uh, and you can actually if all your guests are as good looking as us two <laughs> I th- more you sir more you sir um Yes, uh, so hopefully have another episode soon. Uh, in the meantime, you can find more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the end credits of five games of five games of the end credits. Dum dum ding dum. Musical interlude. Musical interlude. Welcome to five games. Five games of. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs>